Welcome to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experience and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wadenurseconsultants.com slash blog on LinkedIn and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Should You Take That Case, Lisa Wade. Hey there, happy Monday to you all, or happy Medical Record Monday. That's what I call them. And uh, I want to welcome you to another episode of Should You Take That Case? Yes, it is me, your host, Lisa Wade, legal nurse consultant, medical record expert, and the owner of Wade Nurse Consultants. Yes, that's who we are. Think of us when you have tons of medical records you need translated into normal human language easily understood by judges and juries. Visit us at wadenurseconsultants.com. But I am not only the owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, but I am also the creator of our wonderfully private LinkedIn group, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. And as you heard, that is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests from. We use this as an opportunity to get to know one another, and we're going to do that today with Arnold Reed. But before we get Arnold Reed, Esquire, over here, I want to toddle over to the comments and see if anybody's visiting us live today. Give us a shout out. Let us know you're here. Put an A into that box if you're an attorney, a P if you're a paralegal and LNC if you are another legal nurse consultant. But put a W if you are part of a wonderful group that I'm a part of, Women Owned Law. It is a groundbreaking group used to connect and advance women legal entrepreneurs, but their primary mission is to empower women lawyers to achieve success in the business of law. It's a wonderful group. Visit us at womenownedlaw.org if it sounds interesting to you and you want to learn more. If you're watching us live or even catching us on the replay, I want to thank you all for taking precious time out of your very busy days to be with us. But now it is time to introduce our guests for today, Attorney Arnold Reed, former chief law clerk on the Michigan Supreme Court and published author, is a noted national trial lawyer. He has received multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements in the areas of police misconduct, civil rights, and medical malpractice. He has represented numerous celebrities, such as Aretha Franklin, former PBS talk show host Tavis Smiley, R. Kelly, ex-Detroit Mayor Kwame 
Kilpatrick, and the late dean of the House, John Conyers Jr. He has been featured in Bloomberg Market Magazine, New York Times, Washington Post, and interviewed by CNN, 60 Minutes, Dateline NBC, MSNBC, and numerous other national news outlets. He is a faculty member of Harvard Law School, where he teaches trial advocacy, a trial advocacy workshop. And now, let's bring you out, Arnold Reed. Hi, Arnold Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh well, man. well, it's wonderful to have you here. You you've been so many illustrious places, and now <laughs> you are gracing the airways of Should You Take That Gaze. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I've been I've been waiting for you for a while, Arnold. <laughs> I'm glad I'm you sure made you. room for me. Ah, thank you, thank you for being here. And I am gonna dive into what I always dive into when attorneys come to visit us here, medical records. But first, we want to hear all about you. How did you get into this law gig? And how did you get in your area of, of practice? Share your story. Spill, tell us the tea. Started a long time ago. I grew up on um, south side of Chicago. My dad uh, was a barber. And I always tell people that my dad was the greatest attorney that I've ever seen. He would, and this was back in the day when haircuts were $5 and, uh, it was, uh, before the Afros, when the Afros came in, in the community, my dad had a hard time cause nobody was getting haircuts, but $5 before Afros were a thing in the African-American community. So, you know, how long ago that was, but I would see my father, um, start up a conversation in the barbershop and he would always get a controversy going. And once the controversy start boiling over, he would kind of step back and watch it all developed simultaneously saying next customer, next customer. And this argument would just be brewing. I'm telling you. And then when it got a little heated, cause you know, mostly men in the barbershop testosterone flew a little high, he would step in and be the judge at the same time. So he would be careful to render opinion that wouldn't affect any of his business. And I watched that. I was a young boy shining shoes. Back in 1969, I think 68, when Muhammad Ali, one of his first fights was against Oscar Bonavia when he uh, got the band lifted, he could fight. We had a Zenith color TV, it was black and white, it only got two channels. My job was to hold the aluminum foil on top of the TV to make sure we got the reception. And my brother was peddling pops around the barbershop, Fanta, grape, orange, that kind of thing. So my first experience with arguing came actually from my father and watching him do it. Because uh, there were barbers came a dime a dozen, but he had to put some extra spice in and find something special. So. I went on and I had a bad experience when I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade. I actually got arrested. Um, a buddy of mine and I were walking home from school, Catholic school, and I had a green army jacket on. And that day it belonged to my brother and his rules were don't touch my coat. And back in the day, an army jacket was like the thing. So I snuck and put his army coat on. Well, as we're walking home, 
the cops pull up on us and uh, draw their guns. And I turn to run and my friend stays there and he cries. So I'm thinking I can't leave him and I know we haven't done anything. So they threw all of our books out on the ground. They took us around about a mile to this uh, house. And this older white man came out of the house, down the porch, on the sidewalk. They said, look, aren't these the one that just robbed your house? And the man looks in the car and he looks at the police officers with the puzzled look and said, these are babies. I told you grown men robbed my house. Mm -hmm. They kicked us out of the car, didn't take us back to our books, didn't do it. I mean, it was terrible. So that was a, an experience that I had when I was in maybe sixth or seventh grade that made me say that I don't want to be powerless in my life ever again. And I developed a distaste for law enforcement. And one of the, one of the things that my dad did, he was an auxiliary, auxiliary police officer. And it was a situation where that began uh, my exploration into how can I be empowered um, to make that, uh, to be in a position, I say, Lisa, to, to never have that happen to me or anybody that, that I can help. And so those early influences, probably the two biggest, um, made me venture into uh, to law. I was a journalist for a while. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in journalism, political science. And then I went on to uh, law school at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, and, uh, the rest pretty much is, uh, is, is history. Oh boy. That, it certainly seems like your childhood and your father shaped and targeted you right in the perfect direction for you. Yeah, it was, it was uh, something I, I made a decision, um, that I was going to leave home, uh, when I was 15. I left home. I went to a school in Minnesota called Shattuck, Shattuck St. Mary's in Faribault, Minnesota. I was not only the only African-American male in the school, but in the entire town. It's 45 miles south of uh, Minneapolis, about 10 miles away from Carleton College. And uh, that was that was quite, quite an experience in, in, in that town for uh, three years of my, uh, my, college, my high school career. And it was a semi-military school. And um, um, it was a very, very interesting experience. I, I developed some close relationships. And um, I learned a lot about racism. Um, and one of the biggest things that I learned about that was it's more about ignorance as opposed to uh, hating somebody. If you don't know about another person, you've never had any exposure to another person, then you're going to believe pretty much what you see on television. Mm -hmm. And a couple of children, I call them children because we were kids then. One kid was from somewhere in Montana. He comes up to me and he admits to me the only blacks that he saw on television were Sidney Portier, Harry Belafonte. He had never, ever come in contact before. And he became one of my great friends. So we keep in contact to this day. Uh, and so I learned a lot of valuable lessons from there. And I went on to uh, 
you know, go to, uh, go to college. I was a very good athlete on, on the South side of Chicago. And, um, I got to the school, by the way, uh, I had a very good football game and one of the bishops happened to be in the Chicago area recruiting. He walked into my dad's barbershop and my dad had all these pictures on the wall of some game. I scored five touchdowns and ran for 350 yards against Dwayne Wade's high school, Robbins, Illinois. But of course, I'm older than Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade wasn't a thing then. You know what I mean? I understand. So uh, I had a I had an outstanding game, and so that was kind of the talk of the South Side. Who was this freshman kid? And so this guy Bishop Primo, Bishop Primo, just on a humble, walked into my dad's barbershop and looked at those pictures and found out who I was. Maybe 72 hours later, I was, I was flown to Minnesota. I was taking tests. I left my public high school, Thornwood. It was a school called Thornwood. In Thornwood, uh, a lot of pro athletes, one of my buddies on Facebook, he's a two-time Olympian. Um, the next town over, Quinn Buckner, superstar Quinn Buckner. Kevin Duckworth played for the Portland Trailblazers. And the list goes on. Everybody in the neighborhood was an athlete. And so when I went to this school, it wasn't important how many touchdowns you score. What was important is what's your GPA? Because if you got a certain GPA, you would get free nights. And that meant you got to go downtown one day a week for like 30 minutes and then come back. So that's the long and short of it. Those are the kind of milestones, Lisa, in my life that led to you know, uh, me being an attorney and my English teacher, he still keeps in touch with me. He'll text me. If he hears me on national television, he'll say, now, Arnold, you said X, Y, and Z, but here's the proper way you want to express it, you know, from a grammar perspective. So that's kind of like, you know, the, the perspective that I come from. Oh boy. You, you certainly have a story. <laughs> I hope you're, you've written it all down. I have it in my head. One of these days, one of these days, I'll get to writing some of that down. All right. Yeah. Hey, you know, with this technology now, all you have to do is turn on Word and then dictate well, your life story. Well, you know, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. get started. Five minutes a day. Get it done. <laughs> yeah, you. I'm trying to find five minutes. Trust me. Between that, right. I've got 55 depositions between now and next month. Oh, 55. Boy. That is plenty. Well, well, now you're drifting into towards uh, uh, depositions and cases. This is the right time for me to ask you what factors go into you deciding if you should take a case. It depends largely on the case. Let's say it's a medical malpractice case, and it depends on what state we're doing this in, because we do med mal in other states. Here in Michigan, for example, you have to have what's called an affidavit of merit. You have to have a position sign off that essentially you have a case. And if you can't find a position to sign off on it, then you shouldn't take the case, right? Because it's not going to be any case. The other thing that we look for, in addition to somebody being able to sign on and sign and get us a, a solid affidavit of merit, is can the literature back up our contentions? Because we face Daubert motions all the time. So my experts have to be able to at least have four to five or more articles 
that they can say that this is the found that forms the foundation of their testimony. And if we can't find any research to back you up, we don't use you. Then we vet, we vet our experts. Have you been disqualified? Have you ever been suspended? Have you ever had anything that we need to know about license? Well, what dirt is on you out there? And we, we mine for the dirt. And so once we, you know, do a thorough vetting, if, uh, if you will, of our experts, then we'll move, you know, to the next level. And again, depending on what state, many states have what's called damage caps in MedMal. Michigan has a damage cap of pain and suffering of half a million dollars. They can cut the wrong leg off, cut the wrong arm off. They can kill you. That's all you're going to get. It's 500, right? We look for economic damages. And so those are just a few of the things that we look at. Because if you take what's called a low cap case, where it's only 200, 300, maybe for settlement purposes, and you're going to spend 30, 40 or more in an expert. A client doesn't like it, Lisa, when you get your third and then you get your money back for your experts. One of their loved ones has died and then they walk away with eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. That doesn't bode well. If it's a, if it's a Elliot Larson or a civil rights case, some people will be more familiar with the term title seven. We look for cases that are quid pro quo, smoking guns, right? We don't get into cases where you have to prove that somebody discriminated against you and then they get to come back and rebut that. Then you got to come back and uh, say that their explanation is a mere pretext. That's very, very difficult to do. Imagine on the jury instructions to a jury, all of that stuff a jury looks at, right? And you're like, wow, they got to get through all of that before they even get down to damages, right? And so we look at, we like to take quid pro quo cases where it's direct evidence. It's a smoking gun. And that way it's almost strict liability. If uh, your employer makes sexual favors, a condition of your employment, if you don't do X for me, I'm going to fire you. And then they fire you. And it's got to be close temporal proximity. They can't say it six months ago and next year you get fired. It's got to be closer in time, right? And so we take those cases. We also look at what's called whistleblower cases. You blow the whistle because you think your employer is engaging or about to engage in illegal activity. Depending on what state you're in, the burdens are different. In Michigan, it's clear and convincing evidence. You ever heard that saying, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear? That's what clear and convincing is to some of these judges, right? We had a case years ago that was thrown out because my client didn't have a witness. It was just her word versus the perpetrators, right? And I told the judge, because we do criminal law uh, too, um, when you have somebody that has a propensity to discriminate or do any, any act of evil, they don't take an opportunity to do it out in the public. They do it in, you know, in the utility closet. They do it right in the bathroom and there are no witnesses. They're never going to be witnesses. It doesn't make the person's claim less credible. So these are some things that we look at in cases that we decide to take. It all depends on what state. If you're in Iowa, 
Iowa has damage caps except in wrongful death med mal, for example. Illinois, Illinois is the wild, wild west. It's wide open. You don't even need an affidavit of merit like what you do here in Michigan. So it all depends on where you are, Lisa, that, that we look at a number of different factors when we decide to take uh, a criminal case or a civil case. Well, you sound very thorough. Arnold Reed, you're thinking about the outcome before before the case is even taken. No question. I mean, it's it's not about money, but it is too. Most of the cases that we fund in MedMal, we've got over half a million dollars leveraged between three cases in experts, in experts. And you got to be doggone, doggone sure to the best that you can that you got a winner. And the way that you do things, you focus, you know, get a focus group, get a group together. Or if you can't afford a focus group, well, you should be able to afford a focus group if you're doing med mal, right? But back in the early days when I couldn't afford it, I would get a piece of paper. I would have my secretary type up the fact pattern. I would slant the facts against me. I would pass them out in the, uh, African-American barbershops. I would pass these flyers out in the Caucasian barbershops, the Asian barbershops, and I'd make them say their age, their race, and their sex. And what amount, if any, would they award the plaintiff? And again, I slanted these facts against me. In one particular case, the average came out to $5 million. I asked the jury for $6 million and in 30 minutes, they gave my client $4.5 million. Right. So these, these are some of the things that the young attorneys out there, if you don't have a lot of money to do some of these cases that don't cost a lot, draw up your fact pattern. Do what I did. You need some kind of feedback until you can get the point where you can put nine, ten thousand, if that's what you want to do, into focus groups. And the other thing that you want to do is know how to pick a jury. When you get up in front of a jury and you're picking a jury in the states that allow it, I mean, you know, who here is a bowler? Who here, what magazines do you read? That doesn't tell you nothing about how to pick a jury. You got to get to the fundamental issues in the case and find out what they feel about things. And you must embrace jurors that say bad things about you, right? You, you, you want to form a group. You want the juries to, to really understand what your position is and embrace the bad things about, you know what I'm saying? Your case. And once you can get the jurors to embrace the bad things about your case, when they hear the bad things in the trial, they're not freaked out about it. You know what I'm saying? So it's all about Bordier. It's about putting those things together, forming a group. And if you form a good group, if one juror, like in one of the cases that we had, I established from the jury in Bordier, why do you need a gun for protection? Sometimes you may have to use a gun and sometimes you may have to actually shoot somebody. Does anybody have a problem with that? Are there any situations, Mr. Jones, where you've ever been threatened? If you were threatened, do you think you would use a gun? Do you think you could shoot somebody? And then if you get somebody off in left field that says, oh, I never would use a gun. I wouldn't shoot anybody under any circumstances. I could get bashed over my head. You don't have to do anything, Lisa. 
All you got to do is turn to your group and say, you heard what uh, Mr. Sims said. Who here agrees with Mr. Sims? And then they will tear that person up. You can turn them on that person and you don't have to say anything. Once you form that group, it's about a group dynamic in Vordier, a group dynamic. You see what I'm saying? That's the things that we look at. Those are the things that we do. And as long as I've been doing this, I still collaborate with people. I still collaborate with consultants. I still listen. I still learn. I teach at Harvard how to do a trial. Doesn't mean that I know everything. I'm smart enough to understand that I don't. Because when you're looking at a case, Lisa, you can get tunnel vision. And you can just see it one way. It doesn't mean it's the right way. And then here comes somebody who doesn't even know about practicing law that can give you a completely different perspective. So all of these things kind of go on the ball of wax, if you will, when you're deciding, hey, I've taken this case. Now, what the hell do I do with it? Right. Well, hey, I, I've got one live viewer out there, Stephen Haber. He's an attorney in, in New York. Hey, Stephen. And he says you have a good approach. My daughter's a district attorney in New York. Hey, Steve, how you doing, man? I got a slip and fall in New York. I might want to talk to him about it. My guy fell at the Marriott Hotel. Well, he will talk to you. All right. Reach out, Stephen. All right. Okay. Well, now we're into talking about those medical records. When they start pouring in, and do you have a particular routine or process for handling them and, and reviewing them? Yes. What we have to do is, or what we do do is we always get all the medicals. All right. And once we get the medicals, we organize them to the best of our ability, understanding we don't know, well, I can't use the S word, but we don't know nothing about medicine. Okay. We, we lawyers here and I don't know nothing about medicine, but I learned, I learned, I had a hip case where down the hall, I've got $50,000 worth of drills. I got, uh, and that includes drills. That includes cups. I'm, I can't do a hip surgery, but I can watch a doctor and I can tell you whether he's doing something wrong, whether he's doing the right approach, right? The lateral approach, et cetera, et cetera. So we get the medical records. We send them out to a member on our team and they're made up of nurses and nurse practitioners. We have them organize them. We have them a uh, tab and then we tell them, what do you think could have been done better here? And what expert do you think that we need to retain in this particular case and why? And what are the pitfalls that we have to look out for and get us literature? So we have our literature coming from our reviewers to present to the doctors. So it starts right there. The literature, you got to have literature. You got to have literature. You got to have literature. It's very powerful. I had a depot. We settled the case for 2.6 million. This doctor claimed that what he got as a policy and procedure to do some surgery on my client came from a particular textbook. I went out and I bought the book. All right. I re-noticed his deposition up. And I told him, in the first half of your depot, you said X, Y, and Z, and you named this book, didn't you? Well, I just, I just happened to have the book here. I said, take this book, look through it, show me where it supports your proposition. He couldn't do it. Case was over. Mm -hmm. It was over. 
it was over. So that is the importance of literature. Literature, literature, literature. You got to get the literature. You got to get the literature. Jurors are impressed by that. So that's how it starts out for us. Get the medical records, have them, our, our, our nurses review them. Give us some theories. Give us our bad points. What literature do we have coming out the gate? And we go get it and read it. Takes a lot of work. That's true, but nurses are handy. Nurses are crucial in this in this ball of wax. I mean, you know, here here's the thing: we as lawyers, and and I rec- I, I was on law review, I was editor on law review, I was a chief law clerk on the Michigan Supreme Court, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm smart enough to know that I'm no smarter than anybody else. I just know more about one thing than the average person, and that's how to practice law. My brother is a barber. He's a truck driver. When I sit in his barber chair, I can't tell him how to cut my hair. I'll let him do it. The same with this, 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 this thing we call law, right? You have to get people who know more than you about one particular thing, and that's medicine. And then it's up to you to get the tools, get the resources, immerse yourself in it to the degree where you know what you're talking about. But never make the mistake of getting in a deposition thinking you're going to out-medicine a doctor. That's not going to happen. You're not going to out-medicine a doctor or a nurse. You're not even going to out-medicine a CNA. Your goal should be different when you're deposing a doctor. It should be about agreement testimony. Get this doctor to agree on the things that you want to sell to the jury. It's about getting as much agreement as you can from their expert witnesses and turn them into your experts. And for you to get agreement crossed, you have to be able to know what you're talking about and it comes from studying. Don't think you go out medicine a doctor. It ain't going to happen. All right. Well, I like your approach. I, I like your process for handling medical records. Now, is there something that you have a pet peeve about dealing with and deciphering and handling medical records, whether it's obtaining them or organizing them? Is there something you find frustrating and annoying about them? Uh, so many. Like, let me count the ways, but I'll just say a couple of specific things. When you when you're doing medical releases, you're asking for everything and you don't get the imaging back. You get the reports and the hospital will say, you didn't ask for the image. Yes, I did. You didn't answer. So you're going to have to now duplicate your request. So when you're asking for medical records, make sure you specifically ask for all the imaging. You want the imaging. You also want to know if there are any handwritten doctor notes. And then you want the medical records in digital form. Some of these companies will give them to you in digital form if you give them a flash drive. And the reason you want them in digital form is it makes it easier. You can read a thousand pages in maybe a few hours. You can put in the search bars terms that you're looking for and it'll pop up. Or get some software. There's great software out here. And I used to know this off the top of my head, that when you plug the medical records in, 
and you just search something, it'll go right to it. It'll go right to it. Just because you get a thousand pages of medical records does not mean that all those records are relevant. So those are the things that you want to be on the lookout for when you're ordering medical records. Make sure you get all of them. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, you have been full of wonderful insights and advice. Uh, And I'm just trying to see, is there anything you've missed? Any other advice that you would give to new or or veteran attorneys when they're deciding to pursue these uh, types of medical cases? Well, this may sound kind of corny, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. And I tell this to my son. My son's a new attorney in Los Angeles. He's been practicing maybe three years. He's got close to a couple of million in settlements. And um, my daughter, as I indicated, is a DA in New York. So I'm either talking civil with my son or criminal with my daughter. Right. And my, my wife is an attorney as well. Um, but here, here's the advice. Right. You got to stay even keel. There are some cases that I've had walked out of there just knowing I won and then I lost. And then there are cases that I knew I got my butt kicked and then I won. You can't get too high when you win. You can't get too low when you're losing. You got to stay even keel. And you have to realize that the, it's not about winning or losing. It's about the fight. The greatest advocate you have is your own fundamental belief in your cause. If you don't believe it, there's no way in hell you're going to convince the jury that, that, that they should vote right in your favor. And you got to spend time with your client. You almost, I call it getting in character. You have to almost, and this is going to sound crazy, become your client. Learn the pain that your client is in. Learn how your client feels when he or she gets out of bed in the morning, right? And then when you get in front of that jury, for those out there who are psychodrama enthusiasts, and I believe in psychodrama, it works. It's not going to be an effective technique unless you literally have lived with your client's pain. I'm serious. I spent months with one lady who was in a car accident and she walked around with no, it looked like she had no pain. And I spent time with her. And then when I spent time with her, I understood that this woman was in pain. She didn't break a single bone, $750,000 in about a 20 miles an hour impact car accident. And so you got to, you got to live with your client literally and, and find out what it is that ails them so you can give it to the jury. And if you try as many cases as I try, win, lose, or draw, when you walk out of that courtroom, a piece of you going to stay in that courtroom and there's pieces of me all over the country, I'm telling. And so my final word of advice on that is you better find somebody to talk to. I'm serious. Professional help is serious as an attorney. Like I said, we do criminal. When, a, when um, a mother walks in here and tells me her son is accused of murder and then shot somebody in front of 16 witnesses, including six children, we took that case. Not guilty in 15 minutes. The people versus you, Dean Lemons. 
Wayne County Circuit, Circuit Court in 15 minutes, not guilty. You have to, you have to handle that because most people, the reason they don't do that kind of law is they automatically say, I can't represent somebody who's guilty. I uh, had somebody, I had a young boy confess to a murder over 16 pages. When the ballistics came back, it was impossible for him to even been at the scene. He said some kids in the neighborhood threatened him that he didn't take the rap. They was going to kill his grandmother. He didn't have a mother. He didn't have a father. All this boy had was a grandmother. He was willing to go to jail for that. And when I told the prosecution, they still wouldn't give him a deal. Said that they could get a conviction on him blindfolded, not guilty. I went and got a blindfold and I put it on the prosecutor's desk. Smoke that in your pipe. I get fired up about this stuff. I'm oh, just, oh, oh, I'm boy. Just, I'm just telling you. So you are definitely full of, of insights and wisdom. And I hope everybody out there is listening to you. Well, I, I hope so. But at the end of the day, you know what I'm saying? You, you ser I'm serious about this counseling piece. You gotta, you gotta, gotta, gotta make sure you check in with somebody and protect your mental psyche. You must protect your mental psyche at all costs, because that is going to be a difficult thing. I tell young lawyers, you're going to find yourself in two places in this game. You're going to find yourself either in the gym, lifting weights and working out, or you're going to find yourself in the bar. And you don't want to be in the bar. You want to be in the gym. The only two places in this profession that you're going to find yourself if you don't do it right. And I've been doing this for over 30 years. Not to say I haven't been in a bar, but I spend more time in the gym. You know what I mean? That sounds like reasonable advice. And, and I, I'm so glad you're here sharing all of your experience, all your insights. Uh, but it's it's time for a little Q&A. Are you ready for that? If folks got yes, yep, I'm ready. For you? I got a few minutes. All right. Well. Well, while everybody is out there getting their questions together for Arnold to put, put, get ready to put them in the comments box, but now's the time for, of our show where I give you a little commercial break and tell you a little bit about Wade Nurse Consultants and what we do here, but we'll be right back to Arnold. Now, everyone is not always completely clear about what legal nurse consultants do, but let me make it clear for you today. At Wade Nurse Consultants, it's all about review, research, and roadmaps. When we review medical records, we summarize and translate that info into normal human language, easily understood by judges and juries. Uh, we summarize and translate that information. And when we do research, we complete medical literature searches regarding topics attorneys may not be familiar with. We also locate experts to help them support their cases. And when we research, we complete those medical, oh, I'm sorry, I said research. When we do roadmaps, we um, help complete life care plans that can detail their injured clients' future medical needs over their lifetime, including costs for that care. So let's recap. Legal Nurse Consultants at Wade Nurse Consultants, 
For us, it's all about review, research, and roadmaps. Now schedule a 15-minute medical case strategy call by clicking the calendar link you'll find in this description box of this YouTube channel so we can schedule a chat. And now let's get back to Arnold and see what questions we have. Let's take a peek. Do we have any questions yet for you, Arnold? Not yet. But no worries. You give them my information. And if they want to get in touch with me, I'd be happy to uh, talk, uh, collaborate with other attorneys uh, on on cases. We do that. So All right. I'm happy to help wherever I can. Well, I'll put your contact information in the description box of this YouTube channel. And I think I do have one question for you. Mm -hmm. Will you come back and do this again? Oh, I'd love to do this. I've had a blast. It's been great. And as long as this program is here and helpful and doing the things that I know you're doing out there for lawyers in this uh, field, I would be more than happy to come back. Oh, you are so sweet. Well, I think we're going to wind up today. And uh, I'll just ask everybody uh, to, if you have, if you could follow, like, and subscribe to this YouTube channel. If you have any legal nurse consulting questions, you can reach me, Lisa, at wadenurseconsultants.com. But just tune in next week for another brand new episode of Should You Take That Case? And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on Facebook at Arnold Reed Law. And you can get at me at www.arnoldreedlaw.com, arnoldreedlaw.com. Perfect. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experiences and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wavenurseconsultants.com slash blog, on LinkedIn, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel and sharing this show with others.